This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to the little wireless program coming to you from Gadigal Land. If I was to say Triumph of the Nomad, you might immediately think of Jeff Blaney's book on the First Nations. But in fact, I'd be trying to give you a heads up for the story we're going to tell you about the the Nomad's contribution to uh, to human history in its totality. I'll be talking to Anthony Satin, who attempts to set the record straight by uh, telling us the contribution the wanderers have made to human progress and tradition. And then, talking about human progress and tradition, we're going to segue into the lives of Howard Florey and Mark Oliphant, two extraordinary, extraordinary Australian scientists. That fine historian and that old friend of the program, Philippe fernandez Amesto, once uh, said that history is a path picked among ruins, and that's manifestly true. We've always been fascinated by the ancients who built majestic monuments and left uh, written records for us to study, but recently we've started to realise the rich histories of people who chose not to stay put, who pass knowledge down through story and song rather than via pen to paper. It's this untold story, this untold history that's long fascinated my next guest, writer, broadcaster Anthony Satin, S-A-T-T-I-N, and it's the subject of Anthony's new book, Nomads, The Wanderers Who Shaped Our World. Anthony, Welcome to the Little Wireless Program. We've been we've looked at a few manifestations of 21st century nomadism lately. We've talked about the grey nomads who scuttle around the highway. I saw one with the saying, adventure before dementia on the back of the caravan <laughs> recently. And, of course, we also did a program on the, uh, on the phenomenon of the digital nomads. We might get round to talking about them later, but you're concerned about the great sweep of history where you see them being ignored and even worse, vilified. Yes, I mean, we're living through, you know, a wonderful, wonderful time for writing history and reading history um, because a lot of things we all took for granted when we were growing up are now being questioned, um, partly stimulated by decolonialization, Black Lives Matter, feminism. And it was in that spirit that, and also uh, because of Brexit, I have to say, that I was wondering about um, about the history that I'd been taught and and the history that I'd taken for granted. And having spent a lot of my life sort of either with with nomads or with nomads in the periphery of my vision in in North Africa and the Middle East, I thought it was time to have a look at, at their contribution to history. Of course, Australians are very conscious of this because of our uh, growing respect for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders they're, and their mostly oral traditions. Well, yes, exactly. Um, in Australia, it might be more obvious, but for instance, uh, I was born, born and brought up in the UK, and it's not at all obvious here. And it's simply not in, in the history that I was taught. I, I was taught history to the end of end of college and at the end of which i could probably name check three three nomads and that's uh, attila the hun genghis khan and tamburlaine and they all get very very bad press and yet when i went to you know when i left school aged 18 i went to the middle east straight away and there i realized that actually nomads are still part of everyday life and if you're not actually living a nomad life you're certainly very aware of it as you are in australia well Get round to those gentlemen a little <coughs> later. But uh, as I said in introducing you, there's a tendency to vilify the nomad, to see them, I guess, as, as the other. 
Well, this goes right back to the beginning of recorded history. Um, there's a very, very lovely story from uh, from ancient Sumer, which is now Iraq, from about 2400 BC or thereabouts, where um, which tells us that there's a princess who wants to marry a nomad, and um, and her friend. The the story is written as a discussion between her and her friends, and her friends are saying, "How can you do this? You know, he he doesn't wear linen like us. He wears leather." He eats raw meat. He doesn't know how to pray properly to the gods. Uh, when he dies, he won't be buried in a tomb. And nobody knows where he's come from. And it's that sort of thing of where have they come from? Why have they come here? And, and where, you know, how long are they staying? What do they want from us? And so that anxiety that people have today goes the whole way back. And, and it is really the essence of what sits at the heart of my book. And that is this tension between settled people and mobile. What defines a nomad and what's the origin of the <clears throat> word? It's a very, very ancient word. It goes right back to the sort of the dawn of time, to an early Indo-European word, uh, nomos, which has a sort of meaning of the right to graze on a particular patch of land um, and therefore implying that there's somebody who is herding animals. And then it sort of turns into nomad, which is somebody who who has... Um, animals that need to be grazed, and it could be camels, or or um, or horses, or sheep, or goats, or or cows in the United States, or bison, or whatever. But it, it's um, somebody who, and, and invariably living on land that um, you know, in England we don't have much nomadism because because the land is rich and it produces enough food. But uh, very often nomads live on poorer ground, and where they need to keep on moving their herds around. Um, particularly between summer and, and winter grazing. Now, we don't tend to associate nomads with ancient structures, but we damn well should because uh, they were the very first to build monuments. And I'm delighted this is in the book because it's an archaeological site that's intrigued me for decades. Take us to Turkey. Yes, uh, this amazing place called Gobekli Tepe. And uh, it is down near the Syrian border, um, and therefore sort of not the safest place to go all the time. But at the moment, it's good, and it's um, it it dates back to about nine thousand five hundred BC, which is therefore seven thousand years before Stonehenge or the Egyptian pyramids or just about anything else that's really grand. Um, but it's a series of stone structures, uh, T-shaped columns, about ten or twelve feet high. A dozen of them built in a in a circle on on a hillside, with two taller ones in the middle, as though there's some sort of community thing going on there, and lots and lots of circles built next door to each other, and some of them buried in the hillside. And this was only discovered in the in the late 1990s, so there's still a, a lot of debate about exactly what it means and who built them. We don't really know who they were, but what it seems is that these were hunter gatherers who stopped here initially for some sacred gathering, and you know, we for a reason we can't quite understand why. Maybe there was a volcano, or there was some sort of sign, cosmic sign, or something very sacred about this particular spot, and so they started building these monuments. Now, um, hunter-gatherers, you can't have many of them living in, in any one square mile because otherwise they eat eat and hunt everything that can be eaten, and then they need to move on. So in order to maintain this site, in order to build this, what seems to have happened is that these people eventually started domesticating crops, and the first strain of domesticated wheat was found about found very close to there. So what it seems is you have hunter-gatherers who built this amazing stone structures, which they've decorated with humans and, and animals. And then they began to settle. You say nomads were the first to tame horses. Well, that's very sensible of them. Yes, you know, it's it's an obvious, isn't it? Except it probably wasn't obvious while they were just roaming around free. I mean, you know, as as I'm sure you know, in Australia, there's lots and lots of uh, difficulties of taming horses. And um, th so this is up in the steps above the Caspian Sea. And there's this huge stepland that goes the whole way from Hungary to uh, to China, really, across the whole way across the center of Eurasia. And at some point, and it's not quite clear when, somebody had the idea, first of all, of herding them, and therefore you you kill the male and you, you have the female and, and her offspring. And from that, you have the beginning of a flock. And then at some point further on, somebody had the idea of jumping on the back. And it, this is the beginning of 
the most successful human invention of all time. And that is, you know, the horse, which up until the 20th century was our main mode of transport. Well, they were a huge weapon of war in the First World War. Yes, exactly. I mean, right up until until very recent times, uh, the New York uh, Fire Service in the 20th century was still using horse-drawn fire trucks. You know, these were, and so think about it. From whatever it was, three and a half thousand BC, maybe earlier, up until up until just 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 yesterday, here's the horse. Extraordinary, extraordinary thing. I grew up on a little tiny farm where we had a uh, an old Clydesdale to pull an ancient plough. So. I'm very aware of the of the significance of what you're saying. Is there a possibility that the nomads also invented the wheel? Uh, it, well, they certainly go together because the earliest uh, images of, of wheels we find are among nomad burials, and they're also tied in with horses because the great nomad burials in on across that Eurasian steppe that I mentioned these are huge tombs with with a lot of horses sacrificed, and and sometimes in the centre you have a chariot or a cart um, with wheels buried with this person. So definitely the two go together. And initially, this sort of nomadic pastoralism, these are people who are herding, are going with horses or with ox-drawn carts, and that's those are their homes. And eventually, they had the idea of turning it into a two-wheeled cart that sits behind a horse, which is a chariot, and that completely transforms the, the nature of warfare. Anthony, I learned from you that uh, invading shepherd kings had a big influence on Egypt. Yes, uh, this is, this is a, a key moment in Egyptian history, but not one the Egyptians are always happy to tell. Um, they, they, they're called the Hyksos, but although we're not quite sure what they called themselves, and um, they were they were nomads. They came in th- along the Mediterranean plain and then down into the Nile Valley. And this was a time of, after the the Old Kingdom and the and the Middle Kingdom when the Egyptians had sort of come to a standstill. They were so geographically and mentally insular they sort of they had been overwhelmed by these other people and um what these other people brought was the chariot first time a chariot was seen in ancient egypt and a horse and a composite bow egyptian bows were made out of up until this point were made out of a single stick of wood but a composite bow longer made out of several bits held together with fish gut and things like that allowed you much greater accuracy and much greater range and so the hyksos overwhelmed the ancient egyptians this is about 1800 bc and uh, for a couple of hundred years they're in they're in egypt ruling certainly the north of the country and then the egyptians learnt how to use the chariot the horse and the composite bow and push them back out and that's the beginning of what we know as the great egyptian period from this comes tutankhamun ramses the great and and all the the, the glory that we know well we're talking on the uh, on the centenary of the discovery of tut's tomb and of course there's a, a wagon in amongst the goodies yeah, there certainly is, and um, it's quite quite a few of these of these chariots. Which um, there's a there's a lovely tomb um, just south of Luxor in in Egypt, where where the, somebody describes being part of this force that pushes the, the the Hyksos, the shepherd kings, out of Egypt, and they don't really have a word for a chariot, so he just draws one instead. Now, we did a program earlier this year about the Persian Empire arguably the world's first superpower, and you'd argue that Persians were nomads too. Yeah, initially they were, and and a lot of lot of people in in Persia, in Iran, still are nomads. And for that reason, I mentioned at the beginning, and that that is that most of what of today, what is Iran, is very difficult to farm. You know, it's it's not not good for crops, but it's very good for grazing animals. And uh, you know, a lot of it is either desert or mountain. And so the Persians, the Fars, the, the the tribe that that creates Persia, were initially nomadic people, and in fact they never really stop being nomadic. Um, their famous place is called Persepolis, and the Greeks considered it to be a city, but it never really was a city. It was a place where the tribes met once a year for for a, you know in a, in the same way as Gobekli Tepe back in nine thousand five hundred BC. The tribes would gather at Persepolis once a year to pay. Honor to the king and and to the great god Ahura Mazda. Is it because of nomads that we have the Great Wall of China? I know the answer to this because I've read the book. 
<laughs> yes, I mean, I have to say, of all the people I wrote about in 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 Nomads, uh, these people, the the Scythians and the Xiongnu, um, the, these are two different tribes. One sits just east of of uh, Europe and the and the Roman Empire, and the other sits just west of Han China, the the great Chinese Empire. This is around the think about the two hundreds BC. Um, and and between them, there's a, between the Roman and the Chinese Empire, there's about six thousand miles of steppe land and and other things. And there seems to be two tribes who are very very similar and could be the same people. Um, on, in the west, they're called the Scythians. In the east, they're called the Xiongnu. We don't know what they called themselves because they certainly didn't call themselves Xiongnu. They were, which translates as illegitimate offspring of slaves. <laughs> Uh, and I don't think anyone's going to call themselves that. And uh, and the Chinese b- built the Great Wall to try and keep these people out. And in fact, the Romans built a similar wall to try and keep the Scythians out. And of course, they both fail because, as we know from our own time, walls don't work. Well, tell that to Donald Trump. Now, Anthony, what role yeah. did uh, religion play in the spread of these early empires? I'd assume that they were mostly, uh, well, animists. They, yes, most of the these uh, central Central European or Central Eurasian nomads are animists. They they worship the Sky Father, um, and I, I make connections between this very 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 early um, description of the Sky Father with with the Christian Our Father who art in heaven. I mean, it's, these these things don't go away; they just morph into something else. Um, but what becomes interesting about about them, particularly if we jump forward to the time of the Mongols, for instance, which is you know eleven, twelve, thirteen hundreds, who who are riding over the same territory and could well be descended from from the the Scythians and the Xiongnu. What what you have from the Mongols is is, is a sense that it really doesn't matter which religion or, or if you have no religion at all, that's not what's important. So, for instance, at the time of the Mongols, you have complete freedom of conscience. Along with freedom of movement, it doesn't. They ha, in the in their capital, in Karakoram, they have, for instance, a mosque, a, a Buddhist temple, uh, and very Nestorian and various other Christian churches. And it really doesn't matter. So this is where Genghis Khan emerges as quite a nice bloke, and yet we have been told <laughs> only about his butchery of perhaps up to forty million people. And we also know something of his sexual appetites. I didn't realise, however, that as many as one in every 200 males alive today carry his DNA. Yes, he, he, did, he did spread himself far and wide. <laughs> but um, I, I think that, uh, that Genghis Khan gets, gets bad press. Uh, yes, he killed an awful lot of people. Um, but uh, so did you know? So did many, many other people. And I'm not, I'm not an apologist for for the head count, um, nor for the you know for some of the the savagery that went with it. But it was it was a savage time. And what I would say, just to counterbalance that, it, are the wonderful things that he did. I mean, we know, for instance, that he, you know, he he's a he's a family man. He's 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 a generous friend. He's loyal. He's uh, and he's champions um, the nomad virtues, which are, you know, particularly the sense of community and this idea of mutual dependence. You look after me, and I will look after you. So he, throughout his life, he's, you know, there are people who are beside him because he came out of nowhere. He was, he was the son of a of a man who lost his property, and he's he was sort of around him, gathers some friends to try and avenge his father. And very soon, he has about a million people around him, and he's setting out to conquer the world. Well, he does a pretty key... he does a pretty good job of that because at one point he creates an empire that was more than twice as large as the Roman Empire, and you point out that he enforced what became known as Pax Mongoliana. That's right. I mean, we, as I say, we, when I studied history, the end, you know, the if you mention nomads at all, it's going to be one of these guys, uh, Genghis Khan or Timur or Tamburlaine, and and it's always about the headcount, but it's never about um, what comes out of this immense Mongol Empire, which is. A sense of freedom of movement, because of course they're nomads. It's all about movement. Very low um, trade tariffs. I mean, there's a reason why Marco Polo went went east at this time. He went east because a it was possible, because the Mongols had made it possible. They'd set up roads and post houses, and you could get fresh horses, a good meal, could sleep in silk sheets. 
Um, I, j- just for a minute, let's <coughs> talk about post houses. These were <coughs> built, what, every 30 miles or so along the main routes, and there were 10,000 across his empire. That's right. We think about, I mean, I know about the, I was taught about the Roman roads and and their post houses, and the Persians had done it before as well. But the Mongols take it another step further and cover a vast territory with this. And there's a coin called a Gerenj. Uh, if you had a wooden one, it got you bed and board and a fresh mount for the next day. You left your horse behind and you took another one on. And if you had the gold one, then you got the silk sheets, you got a feast, you got you, you probably got to bed, bed, bed the post housekeeper's daughter, you know, you, you, it came with rights. And this was across this enormous empire, which was controlled by, as you mentioned, the Pax Mongoliana and, and a sense of, of law which hadn't hadn't existed before. And it's imposed by this very strong central authority who who are brutal in punishment, but also very welcoming if, if you're if you follow the rules. And tolerant of various religions. However, there's a risk, Anthony, because if you uh, have open borders in effect, you're opening yourself to disease. Uh, yes, the Black Death. Um, well, it, it obviously has an echo in in our own time. Um, we're not quite sure where it came out, but it probably came out of somewhere in Central Asia. Um, could have come from China initially. And it's this d- disease that's carried um, to the Black Sea and then from there into Europe, and it decimates in the way that, that um, COVID might have dec- decimated if we hadn't had inoculations and stuff. It decimates Europe. Um, Absolutely, you know, some countries lose 30, 40% of their population. Um, Well, and and with between 1346 and 1350, 75 million deaths. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. And it, but it's out of it comes something extraordinary and, and also out of the sort of Pax Mongoliana and this huge transfer of, of goods and ideas and knowledge between China and the Mediterranean. It all prepares the way for what happens next after the Black Death, which is the, the European Renaissance, you know, this huge flourishing. But it, it and my, my isn't, isn't my, that a bit of a stretch to suggest that this provides the momentum for the Renaissance? Not at all. No, I think uh, well, certainly the 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 lack of manpower in Europe um, creates the social um, and political circumstances for the Renaissance. It, comp- it leads to a complete rethinking of what it what it means to to be a landowner. Um, a, a complete restructuring of capital. Everything everything changes. But what underpinned it was what had come across the Mongol Empire beforehand. These three. Um, extraordinary and important um, discoveries that came from China um, and transformed the world. And they are paper uh, and then gunpowder and finally the compass. They're all Chinese inventions. They're all brought across Central Asia by nomads and they're all, in a way, weaponized by Europeans. Let's jump forward to the Industrial Revolution and enter stage left Francis, or perhaps not left, Francis Bacon. <laughs> And he was bad news for the nomads, wasn't he? Uh, he was. He he wrote a book um, that talks about the dominion uh, over nature. That that man's you know the, basically God gave man, uh, and this is the Christian God. Clearly, the Christian God gave man the right, and the man is a European man. European man, the right to dominate the nature, and in the process to dominate the world. And it's the beginning of an extraordinary period of of scientific advance, of study of nature, of, of the plants, of the movement of weather, and all sorts of all sorts of other things. But out of it comes. The, the European voyages of exploration and then the whole colonial project. Um, and again, as I, as I mentioned, it, they, 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 they're made possible by um, the, these three things that have been brought from the East by gunpowder, compass and paper, which allows them to have books. And it's also that Europeans want to go across the big seas by then because they're absolutely terrified of these nomad empires in the central of, center of Eurasia. I think it's uh, right that, to say that you don't mention the Romany. Why? Uh, I don't mention. <laughs> I don't mention many people. It's my. It's my book of nomads. It's not sort of you know, the Oxford definitive history of of nomads. It's a particular take on them, and it's a string of stories across 
you know, across 12,000 years, there's, there's lots of people I don't mention, but I think what, what I, what applies to the people I do mention, um, certainly also applies to Romani and to others. I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation about this distrust of the mobile from in among settled communities. It's like, well, because who feel, who feel threatened, who feel invaded. It's happened, happens in, in Europe with the arrival of, of Syrians and Afghans and Persians and, and Iranians and all others um, in in the last few years, and uh, you know, in, I know in Australia you have the same problems, and we're going to have these problems for the rest of our lives. And but to re- regard pe- these people who move as a threat is to misunderstand the nature of 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 this exchange. And do you think we're at a point in history where we need to start to better appreciate nomadic cultures, both for what they can teach us about the past and the future. Oh, well, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the most successful human way of living, culture, civilization, call it what you will, is a hunter-gatherer. You know, the Egyptians came and went, the Romans came and went, the British Empire came and went, the American is on the, on its way out. But hunter-gatherers and nomads have been doing what they're doing since the dawn of time. And long after our cities have crumbled, they'll still be doing it. And I, I have an idea that the longer this goes, that you know, as climate change or climate warming or call it what you will gets worse, that we'll start to look at people not who built monuments, but but people who maintained the equilibrium of the natural world around them, and we'll come to value their achievements just as much as people who build pyramids. I'd like to end on a fascinating point that you make that about research showing that babies will stop crying if they're rocked in the rhythm of walking talk to that uh, yeah well uh 12,000 years is a long time for you and me but in in terms of human evolution it's just yesterday and so yesterday 12,000 years ago we were all wired mentally emotionally physically to live life on the move um and one of the things that that, that we still maintain as babies is that sense of of the comfort of movement. And so when when a baby cries, if you pick it up and hold it at a particular angle of inclination and you rock it a particular number of times, that happens to fit in with, imagine being carried on a human, strapped to a human body and that human being on the move. That's when the baby stops crying. And I, and ev- even more than that, the, the, the same research, uh, or, or rather different research, genetic research, if we have time for this, uh, suggests that... Uh, successful hunter-gatherers, uh, successful nomads, rather, in, in East Africa, have the same genetic variant as some children who've been diagnosed with learning disorders in the United States. And the suggestion, again, is those children are still wired to live a nomadic life. They're simply not suited to sit in a classroom and answer that one plus one equals two. And this is a really important really important point, that the suggestion that you can draw out of that is that nomads in their everyday life are required to come out with a whole diverse way of looking at every problem. And we in our schools do not encourage that in classrooms. And it's time that we paid attention to nomadic thinking. Well, Anthony, you're a fascinating fellow. I've been talking to Anthony (laughs) Satin, writer and broadcaster, author of Nomads, The Wanderers Who Shaped Our World, published in Australia by Hachette. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You've probably heard a lot of nonsense about this program being politically biased. It ain't the case because, for example, my next guest is an ex-Liberal senator. We are notorious for um, cutting down tall poppies, but there's a paradox. Sometimes we don't even seem to recognise the very tallest. For example, take scientists Mark Oliphant and Howard Florey. They played a pivotal role in World War II, which is far from fully appreciated. Indeed, they, they changed the course of the war, as a new book argues. And these two uh, young fellows from Adelaide, good friends who'd moved to London to pursue their research, between them had, in a brief period in 1940, and I quote, developed the device that was critical to winning the war, conceived the powerful weapon that ended it, 
and produced the miracle treatment that enabled countless casualties to survive it. Now, not only that, they had separately travelled to the US to try to persuade the, the US to get into the war and uh, back their research. The book is Wizards of Oz, how Oliphant and Flory helped win the war and shape the modern world. And the author is Brett Mason. Now, if Brett has a hat rack in the corner of his office, it will be laden with hats. Uh, He's a former Liberal senator from Queensland, a former Australian ambassador to the Netherlands, and a former lawyer. And he's still chair of the National Library Council my absolutely favourite national institution, and we'll chat to him about that uh, a bit later. Brett, before we we hear their stories, would you be kind enough to remind us of the value and the spectacular achievements of each of the three things these blokes gave us? Let's start with the war-winning device. You're right. Um, The the war-winning device uh, was microwave radar. And in war, the first task of war, of course, is to locate the enemy. And radar is essentially seen with radio waves. And already by the beginning of the Second World War, there was long-wave radar, but many countries were trying to develop microwave radar for these reasons, that the smaller the radio wave, the clearer the picture, the better the definition. And with microwaves, you can see further with a much clearer picture of the target. Even more importantly, microwaves, uh, you need much smaller antenna. And the long wave radars, these sort of silent sentinels on the east coast of Britain, and some still remain uh, as tourist attractions, were long wave radar, and they're about 70 metres high. They need these huge antenna. But with microwave radar, you could fit the antenna in the palm of your hand or in a suitcase. So you could put it into fighters and bombers and small naval vessels. And it became a portable device to see further in the dark and in all weather, changing the war. I hadn't realised that the Battle of Britain had no radar. It was all done by sight. That's an interesting observation. People assume that in the hurricanes and the spitfires that, that there was radar in the planes. There wasn't. You're quite right. There was long wave radar on the coast and it was old, fairly old technology, but it worked and it gave the Brits about 20 minutes notice that fighters and bombers were coming across the channel. And quite simply, there'd be a phone call from the long wave radar station to a central point and they would send up the fighters to intercept, as you say, visually, pilots visually, the bombers and the uh, German fighter pilots. So it wasn't quite what people think. It really was done by sight, other than the initial picking up of the um, invading bombers by long-wave radar. Did micro-radar help in the final analysis with U-boats? Oh, absolutely. Winston Churchill always said his greatest fear uh, during the Second World War was the Battle of the Atlantic, and that's why he said he couldn't sleep. And that was when, even when the United States had declared war on Germany and was no longer neutral, getting men and materiel across the Atlantic, they were losing that battle, the Battle of the Atlantic, right up until about March, April of, of 1943, which is the last place, really, that the Nazis were winning. And it was only finally when the entire Atlantic Ocean was covered by microwave radar sitting in bombers above the ocean, looking down and spying on the U-boats. Every time the U-boat surfaced or got near the surface, they got them. <laughs> and within a, within a few weeks, Philip, Admiral Dernick said, it's all over. The British have got us. So it's an extraordinary achievement. So while you could no longer fly over or under or float under the radar, Oliphant is busily conceiving a rather different and more dreadful weapon. Tell us about Uh, that. Just a couple of weeks after they invented this cavity magnetron to facilitate microwave radar, two scientists, German jury scientists, came to him with a memorandum that proved theoretically that you could build an airborne atomic bomb. And it was the first time that people believed it could be done, at least during the war. 
there was a vague sense, uh, Philip, that it was sort of theoretically possible, you know, it, but it was out there, but it was for the next war. It wasn't, no one thought it was possible in the short to medium term. And these two scientists, Frisch and Piles, went to Oliphant and said, this is how you do it. And Oliphant was, you know, taken aback, but he then took it to the British, who then spent about uh, 12 months, what you would call peer reviewing it, to see if it really would work. And of course, they decided that uh, it would work and that the atomic bomb wasn't just possible, it was probable. Now, of course, we know that the Germans were working desperately, but not very successfully on it. And I discovered mm -hmm. to my astonishment some decades ago that so were the Japanese, but they were getting nowhere fast. Now, finally, the life-changing, world-changing medication penicillin. Three cheers, four cheers for <laughs> Howard Florey. Well, absolutely. Um, it's funny, I, people don't perhaps realise, Philip, you and I do, but how life-changing, in fact, world-changing you know, penicillin was. Poppy saved about 200 million lives and added, some people say, over 20 years to our life expectancy, you know. I mean, just dwell on that for a minute. Save 20 mm -hmm. million lives and added decades to life expectancy. What an million. achievement. 200 million. I mean, that, it's, it's it absolutely, you couldn't even have, Philip, modern, modern surgery. You know, it's predicated on antibiotics, clearly, modern surgery. It just takes your breath away. But back in 1940, when he uh, developed the drug, even going back to thousands of years, people had known that moulds put onto infected wounds had an antibacterial property. You know, that it, it did seem to help in the healing of wounds. In Central Europe, they were used, the Hittites used it, the Egyptians, and our Indigenous people here in Australia used mould off the um, shady side of trees to put on wounds. So there was sort of a, a folk knowledge. Then you've heard of Alexander Fleming, who actually specified penicillin notatum as an antibacterial mould. And then it was picked up, of course, by Florey and his team in Oxford in 1939-1940, and they extracted the active ingredient, nearly killed them. <laughs> it's so hard to do it, and that's why people hadn't done it before. And, of course, made the first penicillin in May of 1940 and used it on, on albino mice uh, to great success. It's interesting, Brett, that recently, of course, the Crimea has been much in the news, and uh, you point out that in the Crimean War, it was 78% of the death toll was from disease. Yes, yes. It, isn't it extraordinary? And even as late as the Great War, the First World War, half the soldiers killed were killed by not bullets and you know, artillery and, and shrapnel, but by infection, infected wounds or infectious diseases. And whether it's Napoleon retreating from Russia, everyone says it was the cold. It was also typhus, you know, uh, and throughout throughout history, right up until the Second World War, most soldiers died not of wounds from bows and arrows or, or, or rocks or cannon fire, but from infectious diseases or wounds. And people forget that about the Second World War and penicillin in particular changed all that. My guest is Brett Mason, and Brett, you open your book with an account of Two extraordinary flights, one for each man, only five weeks apart in 1941. Can you sketch the general picture of what they were doing and the times they were in? Because in the broad sense, mm. it was a shared mission. Yes, it was. And they went um, in July of, of 1941, Howard Florey flew to the United States, uh, carrying with him hope, <laughs> desperation, <laughs> and some unre unremarkable brown powder, frankly. And why he's doing it is because he now has penicillin and he's concerned because Britain simply doesn't have the manufacturing capacity to mass produce it. So he has to go to the United States to, in, in effect, sell his idea. Uh, and he arrives and he has to front the American pharmaceutical industry and, of course, the United States government. They are very, very sceptical. And frankly, you couldn't blame them. If I turned up 
to you, Philip, and you're a, an executive for Pfizer or Merck, one of the great pharmaceutical companies in America, and said, I have tried this on albino mice and I've tried it on six human beings, two of whom have died. That isn't exactly a, a wondrous case history. And that's what he had to sell penicillin to the Americans. And the other traveller? <laughs> it was Mark Oliphant who came across in August uh, 1941, about five or six weeks later, and he was in a Liberator bomber and he flew right across uh, the United States. Uh, in fact, he really ran out of petrol on the way. They, they, they nearly landed in the drink. But his mission was, was twofold to sell refinements to microwave radar for the cavity magnetron and, and to perfect microwave radar and also to get the Americans focused on the atomic bomb because they had done apparently nothing, even though the, the British had been sharing information. So you're saying that in a sense he energised what became the Manhattan Project? In a sentence, Philip, yes. The Americans seem to take a clear, uh, think there's a sort of a direct path between Einstein's letter to President Roosevelt in 1939 and, you know, and the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project started, was, was initiated because Mark Oliphant uh, got there and ran around the United States berating. <laughs> You've met him. You know, he was a fairly, uh, had a lot of personality uh, and he wasn't someone to be taken lightly. And he um, upset the courtly Americans and said, you have to build this bomb. We can't. And if you don't, the Nazis will. And the, no one in America in the summer of the northern summer of 1941 believed it was possible. But Oliphant convinced some people that it could be done. So how did our salesmen go with their respective pictures? What happened to, <laughs> what happened to Flory? Howard Flory? Well, he was, you know, he, 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 there's a lot of luck in There's a lot of luck in this. He was very well respected. And when he was young, with the um, backing of a Rockefeller scholarship in the 1920s, he'd been to the United States and built up certain contacts. And one of the people he just happened to be working with back in the, in, in, in the mid-1920s was a Professor Alfred Newton Richards, who, thank God, was linked to Vannevar Bush, who was the President Roosevelt's science czar. He was the man charged with weaponizing science for war. And he was the head of one of uh, Vannevar Bush's sub subcommittees. <laughs> and uh, you could be lucky. And it was Flory in a lunch uh, in, in Philadelphia, I think, where he said, we can do this because everyone else had said it can't be done. It's too difficult. Uh, it's too expensive. Uh, it's too unlikely. And Richards believed him. And Richards then sold the idea to Vannevar Bush and made the US government, its facilities, and the American pharmaceutical companies make penicillin. And they did. And it's, it was, it's a close-run thing, Philip. It, you know, it's, was, there was never any certainty. But he knew Richards and he convinced Richards. And it was Richards was the, was the key point for Howard Florey. And, of course, he had the president's ear now. Correct. How did Mark make his mark? What happens to the <laughs> Oliphant trip? Well, it's easier in one sense because already British science was held in high regard because of microwave radar, which, which the Americans bought much more easily because many countries had tried to, had tried to develop microwave radar you know, before the war. And when Oliphant came up, Oliphant's laboratory came up with microwave radar, the Americans very quickly grabbed it and, and sought to refine it uh, and, and perfect it for war. So his standing in the United States was already high. In, indeed, the first, uh, first few sets that they made in America, they called the O-tube after Oliphant, the Oliphant tube. So he was highly regarded. But the atomic bomb was very different. He arrived and the Americans hadn't even, the committee charged with looking at this issue, the Iranian committee, hadn't even looked, looked at the secret reports coming from Britain about their examination of, of the possibility of a nuclear bomb. Hadn't even looked at it. So, of course, <laughs> with his very 
forceful personality. He went around Washington and New York trying to get people to, to focus on the problem before the Nazis built it. He couldn't. So he flew to San Francisco, to, to Berkeley, University of California, and Ernest Lawrence was his, you know, calling a friend, That was he, he was the man who understood the physics and again, Philip, had the ear of someone who had the ear of President Roosevelt. And he convinced Ernest Lawrence that this could be built, the bomb, and Lawrence convinced the others who convinced President Roosevelt. That was the chain. Heavens above, and the world would never be the same again. No, no. And Philip, it's interesting because it's, there's, as you point out in your opening remarks, it's that there's the, the inventions in 100 days in 1940, you know, of, of, of the three, of, of radar and then the bomb and then penicillin, and it's the selling of those ideas in, in the summer and fall of, of, of 1941. It was absolutely critical. Otherwise, all those innovations wouldn't have been, um, could not have been deployed during the Second World War to such great effect. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been, in fact, they wouldn't have been deployed at all because they wouldn't have been ready. Was Oliphant conflicted in his uh, advice about the bomb because his pre-war research had been for peaceful purposes? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, you're right. I think... All his life, he was conflicted between, on the one part, being a you know, war hero, and he was called a war hero. On the front page of the Daily Telegraph, on the day Hiroshima was bombed, there was his photograph, you know, as a hero. And he himself said it was a great, you know, technological and engineering achievement, which it was at one level, you know, clearly. It was a brilliant achievement at one level. But he also saw himself, as he said as a war criminal <laughs> and he in a sense could never reconcile the two for the, for the for the rest of his life and i don't think he ever regretted assisting to build the bomb and advocating and pushing the americans to do it but i think he always regretted actually dropping the bomb on on japan in, in august 1945 i think that was also true of most of the people involved in the, in the manhattan project wasn't it they they oh, realized right. that mm -hmm. brighter than a thousand suns had changed the world and put it at great risk oh, i i think that's right and as you said before you know the world has has never been the same uh, again and it, it changed international relations and, in a sense, even changes the way we, we, we see ourselves. Penicillin made us feel a lot less vulnerable into infection, infectious diseases, but the atomic bombs and nuclear weapons have cast a pall, I think, since, since the Second World War, and we see ourselves at one level as much more vulnerable. And, you know, again, uh, to address a point you raised before, what's going on at the moment in... In Ukraine, it sort of raises the spectre again of, 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 of nuclear weapons. And I, wanna, I don't want to overstate the point, but in the back of our minds, Philip, I think we, we worry about issues like that, you know. Brett, tell me about their friendship. I mean, how did they become cobbers? Uh, they knew, Oliphant and Flory knew each other as, as boyhood friends in, in Adelaide. Not well, because, you know, there was about three years difference in age, and that's quite a lot, you know, when you're, when you're young. But they were students together at undergraduates at the University of Adelaide after the First World War. And indeed, they had a drink with each other before Howard Florey went uh, to Oxford and, and landed there actually one century ago in, in 1922. And then they got together again in the late 1920s when Howard Florey was finishing off his PhD at Cambridge. And of course, Mark Oliphant was commencing his at the Cavendish Laboratories under uh, Sir Ernest Rutherford. So they knew each other well then. And then, of course, after the Second World War, they got to know each other intimately. They were very close friends and they helped establish, of course, the Australian National University in Canberra and were brought back to run that show really by uh, initially John Curtin, one of them, and then, of course, Ben Chifley and, and Nugget Coombs all wanted them to be involved in founding this wonderful research institution. 
You describe uh, Flory as an athletic, dark-haired young doctor and of Oliphant you contrast as, a, well, a gentle giant but as a bespectacled boffin. Yes. <laughs> well, Howard Flory, if you look at the photograph of him in the book, it looks like he stepped out of The Great Gatsby. Um, he, was a, he was quite had striking good looks, Howard Flory, and uh, he had, sort of had nature's gifts of good looks and a brilliant intellect, if not always charm, in the case of Howard Florey. Whereas Mark Oliphant, you know, he had he was a bit deaf in one ear and his sight was always terrible, but he was a man of obviously great intellectual gifts and also a very persistent personality, uh, a bit more gregarious, Mark Oliphant was, than, than Howard Florey, who was more reserved uh, and rather more prickly than, than Mark Oliphant. Finally, let's talk about the National Library, where you're the chair of the council, which I guess is like the board. It is. It is. It's the, the board of the National Library, yes. It's a, it's a terrific job, Philip. In fact, it's one of the great... Um, it's an honour to do it, actually. I love, I love doing it. Well, I think it's a fabulous organisation. How is it travelling? Strapped for cash, as uh, so many of our cultural institutions? Yeah, we are. I think um, all of our national cultural institutions have been sort of underfunded at one level for, for many years for parties of all persuasions. I certainly don't want to show any particular party into the mix, but it's, it's a constant problem. It's, it hasn't always been terrible in the sense that we often get short-term funding to address critical needs. And so for next year, for example, we have Trove, which is, you know, without Trove, I couldn't have written the book that we've just discussed. We've sung the praises of Trove again and again on the program. Oh, fabulous. Great. Yeah, fabulous. And so the funding runs out for that in uh, the middle of next year. Now, we couldn't as, as a country be without Trove, in my view. It digitises all the newspapers, photographs, uh, manuscripts and the rest. And I used it, as I say, for this book. But it's the short-termness, a lot of the funding. It's the, you know, the efficiency dividends on small institutions like the National Library and Museum of Australian Democracy that has a, an outsized effect, I think it's fair to say. But being a former politician, I understand there's plenty of calls on the government's uh, the government purse, you know. But it is difficult. It is difficult. I know Elbo is listening in, uh, Brett, so um, <laughs> I can hear him getting out the checkbook as we speak. But, of course, this is personal for you. You live in Queensland these days, but you grew up in Canberra. Oh, you've done your research. Yes, I, uh, how many teenagers spend their teenage years in, in the National Library? Um, like one of your friends, Jermaine Greer, I, I believe heaven is a, heaven is a library. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I loved it. I, I do have a personal investment, really, in the National Library as well. Yes. Well, break a leg on that because, as I said earlier, it's my favourite of the institutions down there. And oh, thank, uh, you. thank you very much, Brett, for coming on. Brett Mason is the author of Wizards of Oz, How Oliphant and Flory helped win the war and shape the modern world. It's published by New South. And it's time for me to thank the team. E.P. Anna Whitfeld, Anne Arnold, Taryn Priedko, Catherine Zengra and Margie Smithhurst. We'll see you next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.